Welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast dedicated to leadership development through a commitment to reading. Hello and welcome to What Are You Reading, a podcast produced by the DoD Reads Network. I'm your host, Tim Bettis, and today my guest is Lieutenant General Jack Shanahan. General Shanahan retired from the United States Air Force in 2020 after a 36-year military career. In his final assignment, he served as the inaugural director of the Department of Defense's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. Throughout his career, Jack served in a variety of operational and staff positions in various fields, including flying, intelligence, policy, and command and control. He commanded at the squadron, group, wing, agency, and numbered Air Force levels. As the first director of the algorithmic warfare cross-functional team known as Project MAVEN, Jack established and led the DOD's Pathfinder AI fielding program charged with bringing AI capabilities to intelligence collection and analysis. He is currently enrolled in North Carolina State University's Masters of International Studies program. General Shanahan, welcome to What Are You Reading? Tim, thanks very much. Um, Thanks for allowing me to come on and join you today. And uh, I want to thank you for for your leadership in putting something like this together. It's really important to get uh, get the word out to a lot of people. Thanks, sir. I really appreciate it. I'm especially grateful for the opportunity to talk with you today because Uh, It gives me the chance to do something professionally that I've always enjoyed doing on my own, uh, which is asking smart people about the books they read. So in the spirit of this, I've cobbled together a short series of three questions that I like to ask every guest on the show and would love to hear your answers. My first question for you is, how do you prefer to read? Well, uh, once upon a time, I admit to being a uh, hard book elitist where I would only read physical books. Uh, Those days are, are behind me. In fact, we were replacing our carpet and putting in wood floors in my office a couple of days ago and I had to move my bookcases and it gave me another chance to start downsizing yet again. I still have too many books but far fewer now than I used to have but I have to admit today I am almost entirely a Kindle person with the the exception of some of my my books for my graduate work like international relations theory I find myself picking that book up regularly and just thumbing through it but other than that I am I am online it's it's all Kindle these days. I'm so I'm so sorry to hear that sir. <laughs> I, 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 I just because I, I would also because we both happen to be uh, in graduate school right now. And uh, I would also have normally called myself a hard book elitist. But reading 300 pages a day and taking notes, I think Adobe, you know, text recognition and text search functions are something that exists digitally that you can't have in a hard copy. Well, it's also that, and, and I'll be the first to admit, I use the diction, online dictionary feature of Kindle every every time I pick up a book and just it, say, you know, maybe I didn't know that word as, as well as I thought I did. It is incredibly helpful, and sometimes it, you dr- dive down into a little trail of learning something that it links you in through Wikipedia. So I've, I just find the, the idea of, of highlighting notes and then getting the online dictionary really useful. Sure. Okay, question number two. Do you have a favorite bookstore? I guess I, I have to admit it's probably Amazon because I can I pretty much get anything I need either through either through Amazon or through the North Carolina State Library where I can then work myself into uh, in some location where I can then order a book usually physical book through the library you know JSTOR which undoubtedly you're familiar with at this point uh, so but really it's it's Amazon at this point I I just don't get the opportunity to walk into a to a bookstore much these days sure and the logistics supply chain is too smooth for you to, to do anything. Else. It, it is. I can't, I can't compete. I can't compete with Amazon. I have to admit, click one click Kindle is, is, is a magic, magic button. Is your university's bookstore open right now or is it, have they scaled back operations or? Uh, it is. 
uh, it's scaled back a little bit, but uh, I found that order strangely enough, ordering books through the Wolfpack uh, bookstore is not as cheap as is getting. Well, it may be as cheap as getting them through Amazon, but it is not as quick. And I and I got into a crisis last semester. I need a couple of books really quickly, and and had to get them through Amazon because the bookstore just just didn't have them. So it's really interesting. It's it's the the sort of things have been reversed uh, over the last couple of years with COVID. Okay, last question. Do you have a favorite book, and what is it? Uh, yeah, I know you, you. I knew you were going to ask ask me the question. I thought long and hard about it, and I don't have the most satisfactory answer for some people. And I say I don't have a favorite book because every, I treat every book as uh, on its own, and I learn something new or or like or dislike something in each individual book. And that accumulation of sort of knowledge and I hope some wisdom over the years. Uh, I just can't point back to any single book other than I could say, you know, my father, who was a professor of mathematics uh, before he, he passed away a couple of years ago, wrote a, wrote a book called Introductory College Mathematics in the early 1960s. So so there I have to give a shout out to my father for, for that textbook, which, which has long disappeared, I'm sure, off of, of any library. But other than that, no, I just I really take one book at a That's time. That's fine. I'll, I'll add your father's book to my reading list. No book is absolutely a fair question. I think it's, as you said, it's a hard question to ask somebody and let alone one to answer. Well, the standard question we love to ask people on the show, and I would love to hear your answer because I know you're in a different phase of life right now in your career. Uh, What are you currently reading? Well, because I am between semesters and I've got a chance to catch up a little bit uh, rather than just academic reading, uh, one is is tied to the to the work I'm doing in, in graduate program, uh, and I and I'm just working my way through. It's Rush Doshi about the long game and China's China's plan to displace American order um, about sort of the long term plan by China to sort of gain more more hegemony in the Pacific and then maybe some global ambition. So I'm working my way through that. And I just finished reading within the last week a book called The Myth of Artificial Intelligence by Eric Larson. Uh, it's a fabulous book. I highly recommend it. We may talk more about it as we go through some of the other questions. But it's really, it, the title is pretty pessimistic. The book is a little less pessimistic than the, the title uh, might sound, but a fascinating look at the difference between knowledge and inference and how hard it is for machines to ever come close to duplicating this thing that we call human inference or common sense. Uh, so it's a little bit of a cold water splash on, on some of the hype, but uh, I really enjoyed enjoyed that book. But uh, I'm, I'm working my way through Rush right now. Rush okay, Rush. cool. Yeah, I, d- I had not actually uh, come across that book, but in preparation for this, I did try really quickly to crush through uh, two books that I saw you recommended previously. One is A Brief History of Artificial Intelligence by Michael Woolridge, and then Atlas of AI by Kate Crawford. Yes. Both of which I think I'm not sure if they intended to splash cold water on AI, but at least, you know, one talking about the AI as a concept, how it was developed. And then I think Kate's taking a broader political economy approach to saying, looking at the economy of AI beyond, you know, ones and zeros. Yes. Yeah. And I really like Michael Aldridge's book. It was, it was now that I'm a couple of years, you know, four or five years into the AI journey that that I went on uh, a little easy to read at this point, but it's a fantastic primer for anybody that wants to get, I wish I'd had it five years ago at the start of Project Maven, um, because I had to learn a lot, the very painful and hard way. So I really recommend that book to to somebody who wants to get that big overview on the sort of the current state of, of AI. Well, so let's jump in because, so you served for nearly two years as the inaugural director of the DOD's Joint Artificial Intelligence Center. 
What is the role of the Jake in the DOD today? And what did you have to do to prepare yourself to serve in this role? I don't know if there's anything I could have done to prepare for the experience because it was it was unique, uh, unlike anything I'd ever done other than standing up Project Maven. So in, in a nutshell, Project Maven was a pathfinder initiative in the Department of Defense uh, focused exclusively on intelligence surveillance reconnaissance. How do we use AI to, to automate, to accelerate, to augment this thing called processing exploitation and dissemination? How does an analyst get through petabytes, if not zottabytes of information much faster. We didn't have a solution. It was still manual. So we ended up coming up, uh, turning to commercial industry for some solution. So we did that for a couple of years, but that was only sort of the beginning. The intent for the for the leadership and the Department of Defense, the Deputy Secretary and the Secretary, were to move beyond just AI for, a, uh, for ISR or Intel and do AI for the Department of Defense. And when I say do AI, I mean field AI, put it into to operational settings, whether that's the back office or whether that's a battlefield, whether that's undersea, whether that's cyberspace, whether that is outer space. It's not R&D. The focus was not research and development, but it was to field capabilities into the hands of, of the, the users as quickly as possible. So based on the lessons learned of Project Maven, in which we learned so much, uh, most of it the hard way because uh, nobody had been doing uh, sort of what, what we took on, at least in terms of accelerated fielding. Uh, and I was asked then to establish this thing called the JAKE, the Joint AI Center for the Department of Defense, focused on all the other things beyond intelligence. And yeah, it, you look around and say, well, was there any other three-star who had some experience in fielding AI? And there just wasn't. So uh, I would be the first to admit I may not have been <laughs> the singularly best qualified person to stand up an AI fielding organization, but the alternatives didn't exist either. So based on the fact that I did do Project Maven for a couple of years, I said yes, and we ended up standing up the Jake. So there, there is. So I, I, I worked very hard to learn a lot about AI. And then, of course, the organizational pieces I had done, I commanded six times at, at that point in multiple from squadron level up to wing and numbered Air Force. So I know I knew the building, I knew the Pentagon, I knew organizational dynamics, I knew budgets, I knew logistics, all those things were, were, were familiar to me. What I really had to, to spend a lot of time was getting smart, not just on AI, but on innovation, on agile principles, on what the commercial industry was doing to really transform uh, outside businesses to this thing called AI. Um, so that was that was how I, I uh, came to be in the position and did that for just about two years before I retired and hand, handed the reins over. Well, that, no, that's what I was going to ask is because I think you were a, um, you started off as a pilot by trade. If I recall correctly, you were a chemistry major in college. Did you have an IT or computer coding background at any point in your career, or did you, did just jumping into the Intel realm help you make the next step into this position? Or like you alluded to, was it a lot of learning off the job? Well, my coding experience consisted of a Fortran sure. course at Michigan sure. some some 30, 36, 37 years ago, and uh, I don't think a lot of people are using Fortran. But but uh, of course, chemistry is 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 a, is a STEM degree, and uh, the idea of working through problems and logically analyzing any situation, plus all the things that I had done from flying 
from my intelligence work, from our command and control organizations to working all the other jobs I've had. I've really sort of had a dog breakfast of, uh, of different positions in the course of a 36-year career. Uh, and, and I'll say this, and I may come back to this at the end as well, is, is, is an important point is to be perpetually curious and be willing to learn no matter how old you are or how long you've been around. The fact that I wore three stars didn't mean anything to anybody in Silicon Valley. They didn't care what, they didn't know what a three-star general was. They really didn't care. What they, what they wanted to know is what are you going to do with this technology? And, and, and how can, how can my company get on business with the Department of Defense? So behind the scenes, I had to do an awful lot to, to get up to speed. Really, I think probably the hardest part was not the technology itself, which, which I understand mathematics and statistics and probability, uh, uh, which really is what AI is at its core, right? It's, it's sort of uh, probabilistic and, and, and not deterministic, and it's, it's mathematics and statistics and probabilities. What, what I really needed an education on is what innovation was all about and this revolution that was going on outside the Department of Defense and DOD having to do an awful lot of work to, to play catch up. I imagine the learning curve and then even the whiplash going to Silicon Valley might be hard where you're in one institution where people call you sir, moving to another one where people call you Jack uh, and may not necessarily show deference to, uh, to yeah. the stars, like you were saying. Yeah, and, I, and I'll tell you, I'll be honest with you, um, you, get, you get to a certain point where you start thirsting for uh, what I would call professional dissent, that somebody's willing to tell you you don't have the right answer, and with all due respect, Jack, you're wrong. And uh, yeah, that helps. That 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 actually helps once in a while because you, you begin to believe your own press at times. And uh, I don't think I've ever been in that that kind of person. But uh, yeah, I, I'll, I'll tell you some of the most personally uncomfortable, or maybe it's socially uncomfortable. There's a different way to say this. That I've been sitting in in whether it was a social setting or in a meeting with people that do innovation for a living, they're speaking a language which was as unfamiliar to me as me talking about sort of Pentagon speak to them. And how do you, how do you find that universal translator that, that connects sort of them to us or us to them? And that's why there's some people out there that do that very well, that make those connections. You know, Defense Innovation Unit was stood up to try to bridge those, those gaps. So I, that's what I had to really learn a lot of and be just be curious and receptive to change. If I, if I could point to any one thing, it was just have a willingness to change and continually change. Don't 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 establish habit patterns that can't be can't be broken. Jumping kind of into uh, my next question because I've really enjoyed the the opportunity I've had to prep for this interview. And, and as we talked off mic before, I know you and I are both grad students right now. I'm taking a class covering a number of things, but partially the outbreak of World War One. Uh, and in this class, we discussed how the alliance systems between European states. Uh, incentivized rapid mobilization, military plans, compressed decision-making time and space, creating what Henry Kissinger described as a political doomsday machine. And I, I couldn't help but notice echoes of a similar theme reading in preparation for today, specifically Paul Shari's latest piece in War on the Rocks. And for our listeners who don't know him, Paul Shari is the vice president of the Center for New American Security, and he just published a new piece in War on the Rocks called Debunking the AI Arms Race Theory. Among many things, Shari warns that the widespread adoption of military AI could cause warfare to evolve in a manner that leads to less human control and to warfare becoming faster, more violent, and more challenging in terms of being able to manage escalation and bring war to an end. Sir, do you think this is a fair assessment? Yeah, I, Paul and I generally see things the same way. I, I've, I've always been impressed by his writing, his understanding of this, and I, and I actually have worked with him a little bit just within the last couple of months, which are 
come up here maybe a little bit in the in a, in a few minutes. But this idea of of algorithmic warfare, uh, you know, we were called Project Maven, but the real name for the project, which was given to us by the Deputy Secretary of Defense Bob Work at the time, was the Algorithmic Warfare Cross Functional Team. Uh, that is. A, a vision or a description of a, the kind of future that that Paul Paul was is referring to that it won't happen all the time of course you're talking about a very specific very high end sort of peer peer fight that is unfolding so fast and so chaotically that you may not be able to react as humans. So where is the role of, of, of AI? Where, you know, How does algorithm against algorithm play out? I, I, I draw analogies, which I think are, are pretty accurate in sort of how electronic warfare has progressed over the, over the past 50 years. And that is uh, action, counteraction, counter counteraction, and so on. Now in AI, it may be happening even much faster than electronic warfare. Well, electronic warfare happen, happens pretty fast. So I, 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 I very, receptive to Paul's ideas on this. And I think we have to take into account that that kind of future. Now, this may be at the very tactical edge, where at the more operational level, or even back in Washington at the strategic level, those decisions are happening slower, because it's just the nature of decision makers working through uh, big consequences and high risks or low risk, whatever. Whereas an algorithm at the tactile edge, you may not have time to react. You, you need machines and machines uh, working with humans to react to whatever the, whatever's unfolding in front of you. So I agree with Paul on sort of how he talks about this. Do you think AI is destabilizing? Because as I was researching this, you know, some scholars were arguing that it's an inherently offensive capability, especially as you were saying, in the physical realm for like the ability of enabling advanced autonomous weapon systems. And then I know Bruce Schneier, who's a uh, IT expert, has also argued that it could be a game changer in the defense realm, especially related to cyberspace. Do you have an opinion on that? I, I do. And if, if you look at this through the lens of international relations theory, and particularly, I would say, uh, neo-realism, neo and if you want to get even more specific, sort of the Mearsheimer offensive neo-realism or realism way of looking at this, uh, and, and the idea of a, secu a security dilemma, because AI is an enabler, I mean, my, my thesis here is AI, much like networks or computers or electricity is a, is a general purpose enabler, that it is not by itself inherently destabilizing. Uh, and it's not inherently offensive or defensive. I think you could look at AI use and say a cyber offensive defense where it's doing both at the speed of machines, but by itself, with one grave exception. And, and so I don't think it is inherently destabilizing. And the grave exception I would make is for nuclear command and control. If you start looking at a, an alternative scenario in the future, let's say Russia, in this mythological dead hand scenario where they've built an algorithm to automatically launch a weapon should these conditions exist, that by itself will be enormously destabilizing. It will threaten the whole idea of strategic stability. So when we when we look at discussions at the at the nation, national level between, say, China, Russia, and the United States, this idea of keeping AI out of uh, NC2 or nuclear command and control uh, ought to be the first thing we all sort of put on the table because that would be uh, inherently destabilizing. Now, there are, there are other parts of any military 
process or national security process that will have AI involved in them. And again, I don't, I don't think it is. Uh, it's neither inherently offensive or defensive. It's, it's what you choose to use it for that will matter the most. So that's, that's my, my very strong personal opinion on this. But uh, I know that others would argue that argue elsewhere. I just I, I don't think that it's destabilizing. The mythical dead hand program is that so that doesn't count as AI. Is that just automation, or are you talking about integration of more bro- of more? Yeah, no, it's a good question. It's it. So so if you you know the dead hand that that supposedly Russia had. Now, if they make a a modern version of that, or China makes a modern version of that, where then you put AI AI enabled capabilities in that then are automating decisions. So there are certain parts of of any process that can have AI enabled solutions, but in the case of NC2. The ultimate decision about the use of nuclear weapons must always be made by humans. I mean, to do otherwise would probably mean the end of, of civilization as we know it. And, and if I sound dramatic, I intend to be dramatic. I think it's that serious. So uh, I think we all ought to be uh, incredibly uh, cautious about you know, how far we go. The state of the art today in AI is, is not anywhere close to suggesting that we ought to put it into these NC2 processes. I'll save my um, movie war games reference for later on, just because that sounds very that sounds very <laughs> dystopian, um, and hopefully the the algorithm decides to not eliminate humanity. Kind of in, in a related vein, about a, a week ago ish, uh, on July twenty eighth, the AP actually reported that uh, U.S. and Russian senior diplomats held a talks on a range of issues from nukes to cyber to artificial intelligence. From your perspective, as the former uh, director of the Jake, what are the most likely ways that the U.S. can cooperate with Russia in the realm of AI? Uh, and are we witnessing the early stages of an arms control agreement on AI? So this is a good question, and uh, I thought a lot about it with the with the team at the Jake. Uh, we stood up a division within the Jake just to help go after these these kind of questions, and we were we were asking State Department to to take the lead. They just weren't far enough along in, in this area of emerging technology, disruptive technology. Although from from all that I hear, they're very close to to sort of standing up something there to to go after this. There have been a number of of what we call track to non official, not governmental dialogues going on on the use of AI uh, in various scenarios both between or between the United States, China and Russia. In fact, I've been involved in one in the last couple of weeks about a draft code of conduct for AI enabled military systems. And I said I'd, I'd mention Paul again. Well Paul Paul has been sort of at the at, at the forefront of some of that work over the past year, year and a half. And uh, the Center of Humanitarian Dialogue in Geneva is doing some fantastic work coming after this. And what I like about it is, you know, the intent if you put, if you say the intent is uh, to go to a track one where you have formal government to government discussions on this. Uh, we may not be there quite yet, but I think we're not far from, I think it's a good time to engage sort of at the government to government level. And that's why this 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 work by the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue might get the countries uh, to agree that we can move forward with these discussions. And it's a, it's a practical, feasible, serious and reasonable approach to looking at things like confidence building measures or norms or standards for AI-enabled military systems, more to establish baselines between the, the countries. It's not, I mentioned U.S., China, and Russia, but of course the U.K., uh, there are all sorts of other countries that, that would be involved in this, but at the at the sort of the, the, the U.S. national level, China and Russia are trying to bring them into these conversations. So, so I think it's, 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 
time to, to do that. And it's a little bit incremental. What, what has not been helpful, to be honest, is sort of the, the stop killer robots approach to this, which is an easy, it's an easy uh, headline, but it doesn't resolve the fact that you have to go after sort of all these other aspects of putting AI-enabled systems into, into operation. So I actually really like sort of where things stand right now. Now, the hard part is once it becomes an official track one, you start getting more, more um, rigid national positions sometimes because of politics and other reasons. So I'm actually uh, think it won't be long before track, track two progresses to track one. I don't know if that means six months, a year, a year and a half, whatever. Now, the last thing I'll say before moving on to, to your next question is uh, I personally do not like thinking of AI in an arms control fashion. Back to Paul's title of the article about debunking the AI arms race theory. I don't, I, I don't think of this primarily a commercial technology is being adapted for national security purposes. I don't think it's helpful to put this in an arms control rubric, although interestingly enough, it seems to have been handed in China over to the arms control experts. Uh, so I think we're going to see this play out over the next year of is this or is this not arms control? I think it is fair to talk about an AI race between countries. I just don't look at this as an arms race. That's that's just I, I think that's a, that's that's going a little bit too far. But if China's going to come at it as an arms control issue, then where does state state our State Department look at it? Where does Russia look at it? So this is going to be kind of kind of fascinating uh, dialogue over the next next couple of years to see where this ends up. So it's like calling microchips a weapon just because we happen to start putting them in warheads on bombs. Precisely. Precisely. Yeah. Interesting. Uh, well, that that actually dovetails uh, uh, quite nicely in my next question, because I was, was going to ask you, you know, what in the realm of AI development or policymaking gives you confidence in the future? And then conversely, what concerns you? Uh, is that progress something that uh, gives you hope? Yeah, it, it does. So the idea, so a couple of things. One is, yes, it, it is time we start talking about this at state to state, to state level. That's, that's important. But in terms of if I, if I take the optimistic view of, the, of an AI-enabled future, if, if we're realistic about AI's limitations right now, and they're significant, AI remains fragile. It remains brittle. Uh, we're nowhere, nowhere, nowhere close to artificial general intelligence. But if you accept that and say, how can AI augment humans? How can uh, some even call it machine intelligence or augmented intelligence? I think that's a much better term than artificial intelligence. Um, how do humans and machines work together for the betterment of society? Uh, I think there are all sorts of opportunities from everything from medical, healthcare to finance to you could even throw in foreign policy and, of course, national security. There are so many opportunities uh, to help society and not go into that that dark vision of, of the worst of AI. So that that makes me actually uh, fairly optimistic. Now, what concerns me is the hype and un unrealistic unrealistic expectations of, of where AI is going to be in a couple of years. I, I don't think we're headed for an AI winter. I really don't. Um, somebody, I'll, I'll steal a, a phrase I heard from somebody else, might have been somebody from China that said there might be an AI fall coming uh, just because uh, the expectations have been uh, too high for too long that we'll have a little bit of a, a, some kind of setback. And and I, what I don't want to see, none of us should want to see, is a race to the bottom, that people try to field AI-enabled capabilities so fast they haven't done sufficient tested evaluation of what's going out or the work 
worst case scenarios, the, the failure modes that could happen, that could lead to, to some, some grim outcomes. And I don't think any of us want, want to see that happen. So I balance the, I, I, this is changing society. It is changing industry. It will change national security. Now, how do we do it in a way that's responsible, that's lawful, that's ethical, and that does it in a way that helps our economic well-being and our national security? I was going to ask you about the AI winter, but you beat me to it. So not quite a full-fledged, as a, a former Minnesotan, been very used to winters. Um, not quite a full-fledged <laughs> twenty below. Yeah, call it call it a North Carolina. Yeah, that's right. Not a not a not a Minnesota winter. Maybe a, a Florida winter. It's just a little cooler than, than than normal. Jumping kind of into education, so I know you also had, did an interview in twenty nineteen with Wired magazine. You obviously having commanded at uh, several units at several different echelons. You said that military commanders need to be educated in AI technology early on. What did you mean by this? Yeah, I think education and training is something that has to happen at every single level, every organization, from the people that are entering in, whether they're military or government civilians, that get an introduction. Now, for the for the younger people coming into either the services or any government agency, they, they're, they're already familiar with the technologies we're talking about. They don't may, maybe not coders in their spare time, although I've seen uh, plenty of those uh, at, at young ages, uh, but at least are pretty familiar with sort of the, the uh, disruptive technology world. Uh, what we don't have today is a lot of senior people that that have the necessary education and training, uh, and and we need to put in place mechanisms to do that. One of the things that Jay got tasked to do by Congress, as a matter of fact, we've come up with an education strategy for the Department of Defense on AI, and uh, now we'll come down to implementation. I, I left the scene, so I can't tell you where that stands right now, but no no commander should be out there talking about this without having a little bit deeper understanding than exists today. I mean, there are a lot of people that understand the talking points, uh, but to go, we have to move beyond that. I would say I was grossly underprepared for, for some of the discussions uh, on emerging technology when I first took over Project Maven. I felt a lot better, but still not entirely comfortable by the time I ended. So it really is, uh, it has to happen at every level uh, and it, it's ongoing. And, and I, you know, the National Security Commission on AI final report had some uh, really far uh, our visionary ideas about United States Digital Service Academy or a National Civilian Reserve Corps for for emerging technologies. There are some big things that have to happen to get sort of everybody up to a new baseline. It's a generational change, but we don't have a couple of generations to do it. And I know the Air Force has rolled out uh, both a digital university, and I'm I'm a I'm a traditional language speaker, not a I've toyed around with computer languages like Python and whatnot, but I know. I haven't seen it fully roll out yet, but the computer language initiative to try to at least help people understand uh, and build more acumen in coding. But is the is the Department of Defense? I'm I'm assuming this yeah, that, is a mix between yeah. formal, informal education, on duty, off duty. Yeah, no, exactly right. And and there are courses now, whether you call them MOOCs or Coursera, or it's you could go on right and within 30 seconds find online courses. Everything from the most basic introduction to the concepts of artificial intelligence to really detailed technical courses on coding, on R or Python or, or, or whatever it is, and frameworks and architectures. It's all it's all available. So some of it, it, it does has to be done in sort of people's sort of spare time and, and doing it on their own volition, but also there has to be a formal piece of this. And like, like any professional education and training course in, in the government, what goes in, something must come out. So it's a hard balancing act, but because things are changing, is things are changing so fast that we've got to, we, we need a different approach to sort of education and training. 
And I know we've talked a little bit about dystopian outcomes of AI, but one thing I really wanted to ask you, because as a professional and as a book lover, I really enjoy engaging with non-traditional forms of, I'll say, or genres or, or literature uh, in the pursuit of pr professional development, specifically fiction, because I don't think it gets enough love in the military ranks. But I wanted to ask you as a AI expert, do you think your former career field is uh, relegated to only reading science fiction? Is that a good thing? Uh, or does the genre predispose us into always thinking about the worst case, most dystopian outcome, especially for adopting new technologies? Uh, I might reverse the tables a little bit and say those who were avid science fiction readers in their in their younger ages uh, were drawn to computer science and, and AI because that's sort of uh, it's it's a kindred spirit. But I couldn't agree more in terms of uh, I think we should be reading as much fiction as we read history and strategy and nonfiction. It should be a blend of all of it. Um, I, science fiction can be enormously helpful in coming up with visionary concepts that most of us would never think about until you pick up somebody who just looks at the world very differently. Uh, I, I, you know, I was not an avid science fiction reader, but I did read a fair amount of Bradbury and, and uh, Asimov, and I'll never forget what I read because it was so different than anything else I was thinking about at the time. So I think we, we, we should read science fiction. We should read lots of, lots of fiction. You know, one of the I just I think it's worth just a quick diversionary note here. There was the the chief of naval chief of naval operations was up on the hill not too long ago, and he got beat up for his reading list. And there were a couple of uh, social media influencers that criticized the CNO's reading list for not being about just about China, which I thought was the most inane criticism I'd ever I've ever read on social media in a long time. And why do I say that? Well, I I've been a consumer of Commander's readers list for many years, and I've also been a generator of those readers uh, recommendation reading recommendations as a commander at multiple levels the last thing we should do is pigeonhole people into reading only those things that are related to their sort of their day job uh, i spent many 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 hours in a weapons vault learning everything i could about weapons and tactics and i think i got pretty pretty good at it what i wanted to do is come out of that vault and learn about the rest of the world learn about the human condition learn about social sciences read some fiction get a different view of the world than the one that was uh, hitting me over the head 12 hours a day in, in a weapons vault so the idea of of just restricting ourselves to sort of one way of thinking about our job is is just it's almost a destructive influence we ought to be encouraging people to read everything from poetry to fiction to grand strategy to go back every now and again and read anthropology, read uh, Thucydides, whatever it is, uh, it it's only helps us get better as human beings. So I just encourage people to read as broadly and as deeply as possible. Uh, it it's important to do so. That makes me extremely happy because I'm, I'm grinning. I know you can't see me right now, but I'm grinning ear to ear because uh, I, I can't agree with you more thoroughly. Um, reading broadly helps build better leaders. So, but you put it way better than I could. Thank you. I, I think it's a, it's a strong message to communicate to people. For young defense professionals or graduate students who are looking to jump into the field of AI, uh, what should they be reading or what other forms of education should they be pursuing right now? Well, first, of course, you're going to get as deep as you can into the technology itself. Uh, but beyond that, so I'll take that as a given, as an assumption that they're going to get really smart on or sort of the those, those cutting edge technologies. But beyond that, some of the things I already mentioned, like I, I, the more I think about this, the more I, I want to 
tell people, go back and read about the human condition. How did we evolve in the, let's say, eh, just use a commonly quoted number of six million years uh, that humans have evolved on, on, on this planet. How, how did we evolve? Which actually ties in very nicely with AI. Is AI evolution, evolutionary, or is it just mathematics and statistics? It's, it's actually a good thing to think about. But just learning uh, as much about the broader world we live in and what other cultures are like. The idea of, of understanding China in a cultural sense, not just in a state-to-state -state monolithic actor sense is important. But, but beyond that, I also say what I think is incredibly important to think about is if you're going to go into one of these technology-related fields, you need to think more and more about the impact of those technologies on society. And at the same time, what I would say is those that are in leadership positions that are going to be recommending options uh, you know, that involve big ideas in the country need a better understanding of what te technology can and cannot do, uh, because it's important to know as much about what it cannot do as it, as it can do. So I, I think it's a, I, I use the sort of analogy or just the example, I guess, maybe the example of Mark Zuckerberg in a dorm room at Harvard 15, 16 years ago. Never in his wildest nightmares expected to be in front of Congress explaining why his company had been violating somebody's privacy or civil liberties. You know, it was a dating app at the, at the time. We have to think differently. These technologies are unfolding so fast. We've got to start thinking seriously about their impacts on society. And I know um, some of your listeners may may not like him or others may like him, whatever. I would always recommend go and read Henry Kissinger's article in The Atlantic magazine from about two years ago called How the Enlightenment Ends. And what Kissinger's really getting at, at his age, was the core point of we had better get a, a, a greater understanding and grasp of what these technologies are doing to society. If we don't, we will be in peril because it will overtake us at some point. So the idea of, of understanding, uh, they're not just technologies anymore, they're, they're impacts on, on how we live, how we work, how we play, and we need a better understanding of that. And, and again, I'll say what it was just getting at earlier, which is the people that are making big, big strategic decisions have, have to have a better understanding of the technology that's in their hands. That's been the humbling reminder from grad school is that, you know, oil was only discovered about a century ago. Computers were only invented, you know, roughly around World War II and talk about how revolutionary those two technologies were. Some of the impacts you can't predict, but a lot of it, I think you can, at least on the front end. Yeah, you know, and, and, and there's a common saying is history doesn't repeat itself, it rhymes. Uh, even that is, is, is a little bit of a flawed statement. It, it is always worth turning to history to better understand where, where the future might bring us. But there are limits to that. I think we, we want to always read history with, an, with the understanding of what you just said. Sometimes it is always unpredictable, I guess. It's always unpredictable because it's contingent. History is contingent. It's contingent on decisions made by individual peoples at individual places and times that you can have multiple scenarios play out based on, on, on different decisions. So we have to understand that history really is contingent and the decisions being made today about these emerging and disruptive technologies will affect the world for, for the next 50 years. That's why it's so important to get it right. I know we're coming to the end of our time here, but do you have any other words of wisdom or encouragement for the DoD Reads audience? Yeah, I, I'll go back to what I, I said at the beginning is to be perpetually curious. Uh, have an open mind. The moment you start allowing your mind to close and you start searching for that echo chamber on social media that matches your personal views, 
uh, we're in trouble. You know, one of the reasons I wanted to come back to school at, at sort of my seasoned age, uh, one, the GI Bill allows me to do so, but two, I wanted to come back and reconnect practice to theory. And I wanted to hear alternative viewpoints and to hear a different view of uh, how things are playing out in the Asia Pacific region than maybe I thought they were. The idea of, 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 of not letting that little gray matter between your ears start to close up in a way that you really believe that you have the answer to, to somebody or to, to some big problem. It's too easy to do that today. So be curious, be perpetually curious, be willing to, to always learn. And, and I have to say right now, if, if I see a dystopian future, it is actually despite AI, not because of it. I think we are becoming so polarized and divided in this country that we're in trouble unless we resolve some of the most basic fundamental underlying problems in our society today. That has very little to do with AI, if anything. So the human condition is the human condition. And uh, I think we've got to address that before we address anything else. So I, I just, I, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, an incredible time to be studying this today. Uh, so much is unfolding so fast that I, I can't begin to predict what 15, 20 years looks like from right now. I, I don't think it's artificial gel intelligence. If that ever happens, it's not in that time frame. But but things really are happening quickly today. So hang on for the ride. Uh, keep keep reading, keep, write, keep writing, which is as important as reading, to start putting your thoughts on paper. And that can be anything from a blog to doing what you're doing, Tim, today through, uh, through a podcast, just to expand the knowledge base and to hear other ideas and to play out ideas in the crucible of friction, fr friction of ideas. And no friction, no traction, as my J3 boss used to say. So I think that's important. And uh, I thank you again for an opportunity to, to talk to your, to your audience. Awesome, sir. That's the perfect note to end on. It's been wonderful having you on today's podcast. Thank you so much for making time to talk to us. You bet. Thank you. And thanks to, to all your listeners out there and, and uh, charge forward. A box of books is like a care package for your brain. If your command library is looking a bit shabby, DOD reads can help. We are connected to multiple organizations that would be glad to send your command free books, magazines, and high-quality reading material. Head over to dodreads.com and check out our featured article, Eight Ways to Request Free Books for Your Command, and then let us know, what are you reading? Thanks for listening to this episode of What Are You Reading? a podcast produced through partnership with DOD Reads. If you enjoyed this podcast, please rate, subscribe, and share it. Leave us a comment with your answer to the question, what are you reading? Also, visit dodreads.com for free books, book reviews, interviews with your favorite authors, and many more free professional development resources. See you next week.